Well, folks, I think we'll make a start, if that's okay. Um, we, might, we might have a few uh, people slightly late, so just stare at them and frown as they come in or whatever. I'll do my best to ignore them. Um, so, I mean, we know because it's Tuesday night and it's out of the house, like, not everyone's going to be able to come, and obviously there's people babysitting and uh, late back from work or whatever, and obviously not everyone's in a home groups in the whole church, so not everyone can, is always free on a Tuesday night, so we understand. So... Just to say, what we'll record, there's going to be some discussion, we won't record all that, in terms of the, in terms of the teaching. This is your chance, you scale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to say, uh, we will record this, and at some point, I'm hoping to produce something in terms, by way of like a document, the elders are going to put that together in terms of vision and values. Um, and it's also worth saying, to be honest, that you know what we're talking about tonight isn't like a finished uh, product. Partly because that's kind of the way my brain works. It takes me an inordinately long time to produce finished products. <laughs> um, but I really like talking about things, and that's just kind of uh, part of what's easier for me. So. I'll enjoy presenting this to you in a slightly more conversational way and having some discussion and feedback. I think that would be helpful for all of us. So, um, so all I'd say, uh, yeah, tonight will be recorded. So if there's people here who aren't, uh, people in the church who aren't here and you remember to just let them know, it'll be available on the church website um, and the SoundCloud account. Um, that's it, really. So, and we're going to be meeting for... We're going to meet this week, obviously, because we're all here. Next week, uh, I'm away teaching something to do with life and the spirit, the kinetic network. Um, so but then we're going to do the three weeks after that. And the plan is we're going to look at, tonight we're going to look at values, which is basically our kind of core uh, theology and vision, for the, which directs the vision of the church. So this week, values. Next week, we'll look at vision, which is like, concretely, what does that look like if we live it out? Uh, the week after that, we're, going to, we're planning to look at membership, and what does it mean in terms of what the, the Bible says about membership? Actually, that's not really true because the Bible doesn't say a lot about membership. But what are the biblical principles of membership? Is really a better way to look at it. And in week four, we'll look at the practicalities of, you know, actually, just the kind of uh, what does it mean to be a member of the church? And all that will go together in terms of producing something that's helpful for us, uh, for the whole church. Um, and it's also worth saying that we're taking this time out of home groups as well, just to help those who are leading home groups think about. Uh, the direction of the group and is everything working okay and you know having a break sometimes just helps to reset things and so there may be I actually absolutely have no concrete plans at all but there may be some changes in terms of the way home groups operate uh, at the end of uh, this period as well but that's really up in the air so again nothing concrete with that just to give you a heads up that that might happen hopefully in a way that you guys will look forward to that sound okay? Yeah. Cool. And the fourth one is? Oh, the fourth one is membership. Is Again, the third one is membership. The fourth one is in terms of practicality of membership. If I tell you what it is, everyone's going to go, because it doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it seems like you know, your rights as a member, your duties as a member, but it, it'll be much more interesting than I've just made it sound. So. <laughs> <laughs> you okay? Hey. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, what time do you think we start? Eight. Oh, okay. That's okay. Um, I want to begin with uh, a prophecy from 1947, and uh, Kathy's going to read it for us. During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterised by the restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this is so exciting, Jeff. (laughs) The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. 
But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the way, there will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores. Even the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the UK to the mainland of Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's, that was a prophecy, uh, a guy, a rather colourful character called Smith Wigglesworth, some of you have heard of him, <laughs> uh, gave that prophecy publicly uh, in the UK in 1947. And actually, the first two parts of that, the first two waves, if you like, of the charismatic renewal followed, you know, in the following decades, as, as he predicted. And the things ha- that he predicted happened. First of all, a renewal within the existing denominations and then the establishment of new churches all over the country. And both times, people said, this is it, this is, <laughs> this is the end, this is the, the big thing that God is going to do. Um, and he was saying, no, it's not the end result, actually, there's something even bigger coming, a unity of word and spirit. And that really is, for me, if you like, a very simple way of summing up uh, my heart uh, for this church. Uh, and it sums a lot, up an awful lot of my own personal journey as well, um, in terms of where I've been on an individual level, but also the sort of theological journey that the Lord has taken me on since just before I became pastor here and, uh, and since then. Um, and I'm really excited about it. When I hear that, some people hear that and think, wow, a move of God into the, you know, and the revival across the whole world. You know, and some of you may be listening to that and thinking, this is amazing, that's what's going to happen. I think God's going to do that. I listen to that and think, wow, amazing theology. Because <laughs> that's, you know, I, I really love that stuff. But, um, but it really is the unity of those two things that I think is a really helpful way in for us to understand what I think is both exciting and unique about what God wants to do here at Turner's Hill, uh, why we've got something special, why God may be doing same thing like similar things in other churches, maybe to do with us, maybe not, who knows. Um, so, I want to begin just with a little discussion amongst yourselves in your tables. You've got a piece of paper, and I want you to discuss maybe for five, maybe a bit longer, ten minutes. What do you think it might mean for us to be a word and spirit church? I know some of you will come with that cold, and you're like, I'm really not really sure at all. Um, it's okay, it's fine, it's not like a right or wrong, it's just, you know, to get you thinking about it, and maybe, maybe you'll think of some things I haven't thought of as well. Um, I put some scripture references... You don't have to use them. That's literally like, if you really love looking up scripture, then feel free. If you're stuck for answers, then maybe they'll inspire some ideas. But they're not the answers. I know you're like, when I'm not in your home groups week by week, you know, sometimes you're thinking like, just got a specific, I don't have a specific answer in mind. Um, just, I want you to discuss and think about it. So is that okay? Can you do that? And can I join someone? I don't know. I'll, I'll sit on a particular table and not say anything. I want to share a little bit of my testimony um, because it talks about these two things and perhaps because providentially the journey that I've been on in terms of, the, in terms of word and spirit is not, it's not an accident and um, you know, maybe God's been at work in that. So I, I was converted in a Pentecostal church and um, some of you will know some of this. So, uh, my family used to live in Cornwall. Until I was nine, we attended a, a local Baptist church, and I didn't find it terribly engaging or interesting. It was just there in the kind of background. Except for, oh, was that who it was? Yeah. Except for the uh, Sunday school teacher who had a bit of a crush on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's okay. Excuse me. 
<laughs> Testimony should be personal. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wasn't terribly engaged, and, but when we, we moved to Birmingham when I was nine, and we started going to a Pentecostal church, and for me, that was really when my faith kind of came alive. And I think a big part of it was uh, there was a lot of freedom, you know, there was, it was very relaxed, there was a young band playing live music, and uh, that engaged me, I think, just kind of, it seemed quite real, and it wasn't, didn't sound like, I don't know, we had an organ or piano or something, I don't know, at Baptist church, but... You know, it's just it, somehow it grabbed my attention. People were singing like they meant it, you know, rather than going, no, no, no. Actually, people had their hands up and they were really heartfelt and the words were personal and emotional. And that's a big part of it. The preaching was lively and if a little long, it was powerful. And, and uh, there was an emphasis on personal relationship with God, personal experience, um, felt the presence of God, charismatic gifts, especially prophecy and speaking in tongues. And, you know, I just. I thought it was amazing, and it was in that, in that I became convinced of my need of Jesus Christ as my saviour, and was saved in the church service at, at that church when I was 10, so about a year or, and a bit after we moved there. Um, and that was really, really formative for me, so I grew up in that church, and we had a very formative experience in the church, and then through kind of Pentecostal summer camps, where it was like, you know, just like Soul Survivor, but just on a kind of smaller scale, and all the same things were were valued, real, um, that real sense of personal relationship with God. Worship and prayer was supposed to be like an experience where you felt God's presence, we expected the miraculous, we expected to see the gifts of the Spirit. We expected the Holy Spirit to do unusual things, you know, for stuff that we hadn't planned or didn't read about in the Bible to, to happen. Um, and so that was my early experience of, and to be honest, I just thought that was all there was to Christianity. I thought we had it, and, you know, we had the, we had the real deal, and all the rest were kind of like, no, they're okay, but they're probably lacking the really important stuff that we, which the Pentecostal church has. And um, it did me okay, um, I thought, until really I went to university and, uh, and after got married and so on. And um, it, it, the, In my own personal context, what I began to notice really, I can reflect on now, is first of all, there, there were quite a lot of problems with, with my, the faith I'd inherited uh, or grown up with. Um, one was a real kind of pride, that little hint of like we've got something that other people don't have. Actually, it was really unhealthy because it, it made me feel like actually um, this idea that God was doing a new thing really divorced my faith from the historical faith of the church and it leaves you really, really vulnerable to people coming along and saying, you know, the church has got it wrong all these years and we need to do something new. I'm thinking of people like Rob Bell, that sort of thing, a kind of a love of novelty that really takes you off the rails. And I recognise, looking back, that was really present in me, a real disdain for the historical church that left me unanchored. But, I mean, that's the theological reason, the theological issue. But actually, there are other issues as well. Morally, I had, you know, I knew right and wrong. It wasn't like the pastor forgot to teach about that stuff. But I didn't feel the weight of it. I didn't feel the jeopardy of sin, or the weight of the, you know, the command to be holy. I didn't understand the lordship of, of Christ. I didn't understand that there was anything at stake, like if I sinned or didn't sin. And so morally, I had a real loose grasp of my faith. And to be honest, that wrought, that wrought havoc in my own personal life in lots of subtle and not so subtle ways. Um, I, and I struggled, I would struggle, I would have struggled to articulate my faith as well um, in terms of ex- understanding what's happening to me or explain to other people, you know, how the Christian faith works, all that sort of thing. And also, I saw in myself and in, in churches certain patterns emerging. It, 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 was very diffi- it seemed very difficult for people to hand on their faith to their children. So there was like a disconnect. Where you have these really faithful families. They love the Lord and they had all the gifts and the hands in the air and all the really important things. Uh, and then the kids would grow up and they would never go to church ever again. You know, they'd, the first thing that happens, they'd meet a girl or a boy or, you know, start drinking or whatever and then it was just this massive discontinuity and it was this kind of approach of we prayed for our kids and you know we hoped for the best and we just kind of expected them to get saved do you, do you recognize the stuff i'm talking about yes. um there was also like you know institutionally there's this kind of openness to really wacky teaching and really wacky things happening and, and no critical perspective 
you know, it's just kind of like, if it's powerful and if it's kind of flashy, it's, it must be God. And actually, some of the stuff really wasn't, or at least needed a lot of reflection to understand what God was doing. Um, and then there was a tendency to, re- because of that lack of awareness of the historical church and all those things, there was a real tendency to repeat mistakes and repeat heresies and for the same things to go round and round. And, you know, again, that's not just theologically important. Actually, that wrecks churches. It wrecks lives and families and marriages and individual faiths are shipwrecked because of that stuff. So I, I saw that, and I saw that in my own life in various ways, to varying degrees. I saw it in churches. and um, So some really, really good stuff about being like a spirit church, but also some major weaknesses. So on a personal level, um, as I uh, began to uh, approach the call to be pastor here, the Lord really took me on a journey into what we, what's called Reformed theology, or more commonly called Calvinistic theology. And that really came about because Paul Astley, uh, in terms of, um, I, I mean, I'd done a theology degree, so it wasn't like I was a newcomer to theology, but in terms of really getting stuck into theology, it was as I began to prepare sermons. Somehow, in the mix of my slightly potted theology from my Pentecostal experience, I had a very high view of scripture and preaching. And so when it came to preaching, I would really study God's word and pray and ask him to show me what it's about. And I would go and read what other people had said about it and I would read theology and I would read other people's sermons. And the people I was reading were people like Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Piper and Jim Packer and uh, Charles Spurgeon. And I came and what I began to realise is this, there's this amazingly rich theology. And um, that, that theology really helped me on a personal level as well. So not only did I see structure and a way of articulating my faith and a connection to the past, but actually it began to speak really powerfully to me about my own, uh, my own life and the direction of my life. And, and God really set me straight, not just in my thinking, but in my living in really, really powerful ways. To the point where, not long before I became pastor here, I was pretty much, I'll be honest with you, I was pretty much ready to ditch all the stuff that I had before. Because I found it, the doctrine so life-giving, this God being sovereign, you know, in control of life, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, the richness of the Bible and how beautiful it was and how, like, just studying the Bible and getting, you know, so much there. You know, why would I want to listen to prophecies, even one like, one we've heard, you know, when the Bible is so rich. You know, all this stuff, like, comparison, all the stuff I'd had before seemed very watered down, very weak and kind of dangerous, actually. And I got to a point where I had a kind of personal crisis of, like, I, I felt some that stuff was good, but I'd seen the effects of it in churches and in my own life and thought, I'm not, I'm not sure anymore. And I got to the point where I was pretty much ready to, to turn my back on it. Uh, is this okay, me talking personally like this? And I, as, as I began to have those doubts, I noticed in me some of the things that you can tend to see in word-only churches. I noticed growing me a rigidity uh, of doctrine, a a disdain for those I disagreed with, a fear of what was not explicitly talked about in the Bible, a kind of judgmental and harsh spirit growing, really. Honestly, I, you know, I can feel it creeping up, like almost like being frozen, you know, like something in a cartoon, you know, when your feet get frozen. And uh, you remember some of the conversations we had at the time. Um, and uh, it was really interesting. So at that time, I was going through that crisis. I went to the Life and the Spirit conference, which calls itself Word and Spirit, or Reformed and Charismatic. And I went with three questions that I thought were real theological zingers, you know, it was like, because I had this kind of pride and proud and judgmental spirit, I was going to go and I was going to answer these questions in private and be like, nailed it, we can leave all this nonsense behind. <laughs> And uh, these three questions in mind, and the guy called Sam Storms from the US came. He's a good theologian, good pastor, great preacher, and his three topics were my three questions. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, that, that is amazing, really. I just, I'm just gobsmacked at what God did that day. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't leave with all my questions answered, but I, I left having been turned around. And a guy called oh, Paul Sands, he was here last week. <laughs> Um, uh, he was just as kind of wacky then as he, as he is now and um, 
he came and he prayed for me and he, he, I hadn't told him anything. And he prayed for me and he said to me, he said, uh, he gave me a prophetic word, he said, God wants you to know that you've been trying to fit uh, scripture into your mind. And it's too big. <laughs> you need to submit your mind to scripture. And then you'll see how it all fits together. And, um, and that was, you know, that he had that prophetic insight that these three things were spoken to me and it really powerfully turned me around. And it began a journey for me, really, of, of looking, well, what does the Bible actually say about the Spirit? You know, how do we bring these things together? What happens when you really bring a word and spirit approach to discipleship and to church together? And that, for me, really has been my kind of personal theological journey, but also a kind of, if you like, my hidden mission as a pastor, really working on that question and trying to figure it out for all the time that I've been um, serving at the church here as well. So what does happen when you really put those two things together? That's the question. Should we do that next week? (laughs) Um, The thing is, they're not easy to put together. That's the interesting thing. So one of the questions was, why is there always seem to be this tension? You know, so it seems to be, so for example, a reformed understanding of worship, like what you do on a Sunday morning, basically says you've got to stick, if the, there's two approaches basically in reformed theology. Either, if it's not mentioned in the New Testament, you're not allowed to do it. That's the regulative principle, uh, strictly observed. So like our friends at Maiden Bower Baptist Church will do that. So there are no musical instruments mentioned in the worship of the church in the New Testament. Therefore, no musical instruments. Some of you guys have experienced this. Tuning fork. Tuning fork. Ding. You're allowed that. I don't know why. And then, <laughs> hum the first few bars and then people will sing. Uh, but only the Psalms, because they're the only songs quoted in the New Testament. You know, so that sort of thing. So, you know, really restrictive. And then there's a slightly more commonly... It's like, if it's not, forbid, not forbidden in the New Testament, you can do it, but it's very strictly controlled. Um, but then you go to a charismatic church, and it's kind of like, you know, fill your boots, do whatever you like. <laughs> and actually, it's not so much that, it's that there's this tension of attitude, you know, that one is controlled and the other is free, and it doesn't matter how minor the rules are, if you say to people who are just kind of happy doing whatever they feel like, oh, we can't do that, it's kind of like, well, what do you mean you can't do that? <laughs> you know, there's a real conflict there. Um, like optimism, like in Reformed theology, or really word-based churches, there's a very pessimistic kind of and sceptical view of other Christians. That, that harsh, judgmental spirit that was in me, doctrinaire, and you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's very common, and it's kind of like, we, you know, so you get the whole, whole kind of, we, have, we don't have anything to do with them. And, and if the circle gets narrower and narrower and narrower until you know, we only have to do with people from our very specific you know, denomination or sect. Um, and, but versus the optimism in the charismatic church, which, like I say, is kind of like, well, you know, if miracles are happening or people have got their hands in the air, then the Holy Spirit's there and God doesn't have a problem with anything that happens in that church. So we don't want to say anything bad about Benny Hinn or whoever, <laughs> um, because that would be like, uh, you know, it's just not the right thing to do. Um, yeah, so there's a real tension. Um, so what happens when you really look at what the word has to say about the spirit? Well, the journey the Lord took me on really was um, partly through scripture and partly through people I really <clears throat> admired, like um, Martin Lloyd James and uh, other the- Jonathan Edwards and so on, was to see actually that in scripture the primary facet of the Holy Spirit's work or the nature of the Holy Spirit Himself is is love. And that's central to who the Holy Spirit is and what he wants to do and how we experience him. So, and, I, and you see that in scripture. So for example, in 1 John, it was, you know, he says, whoever lives in love lives in God. So you know, if you want to experience God, it's not going after a certain powerful experience, chasing revival, that sort of thing. But actually there's a command to live in love with other Christians. If, um, or you take Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you've got this sandwich in chapter 12, 13 and 14 in 1 Corinthians. A church that was definitely charismatic, no doubt about that, right? <laughs> and maybe a little bit wacky. 
definitely a bit wacky. And he's got this whole chapter on spiritual gifts and how amazing they are and how the Spirit gives gifts to whoever he wants. That's chapter 12. And then he's got this chapter 14 where he's talking about, I wish that you would all prophesy and this is what to do with tongues. Da, 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 da. And what does he put in the middle? What we always read at weddings and so on. Without love, I'm nothing. You know, love is... is so what, what are you saying to me? He's saying again and again, love is the centre of what... You know, if you want to be a spirit-filled church, if you want to encounter God, if you want, you know, if you want the power and the presence and all those things that charismatics like to talk about, love is, for one another, is key. You've got um, Jesus' uh, upper room discourse, John 14 to 17, where three times he tells the disciples that he'll give them another counsellor, that the Father will come and make his home, uh, will make his home, uh, the Father and Son will make their home with them, and that Jesus will manifest his presence to them. If if what? Do you know what? If you love one another mm. as I command you. So this promise of this charismatic, what we would classify as charismatic experience, the felt presence of God, the power of God, the miraculous, the, the Holy Spirit, and even the promise of guidance and towards understanding truth depends upon our love for one another. Um, John 17, it talks about um, Jesus' great high priestly prayer. And he talks about, he's praying for his disciples and he says, I pray not just for them, but for those who will come after them, that they will be truly one. If they're truly one, then the world will believe that the Father has sent me. So there's this, if we want people to believe our gospel and believe in Jesus and understand that we're speaking the truth, actually the, the key thing in scripture is not that we articulate it in precisely doctrinally, you know, proper ways or any of this. It's that we, we're in genuine unity with one another. So there's this love for the church. Love for the church is central to the Spirit's work. And that centrality of love gives a certain shape to the Christian life, which I want to suggest is one of our foundational values. And I'll, I'll sum it up for you in a minute. Firstly, it's confidence in, that the Spirit will do the job that Jesus promised he would do. So he says in that upper room discourse that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. There is a very characteristic of word-only theology and certain aspects of Reformed theology is an extreme scepticism that imagines that really, really centrally important truths of the Christian faith can disappear for centuries at a time. In its extreme form, and there are real professors who teach this stuff, who are clever, I mean really super clever guys, who will teach that up until the death of the apostles, the gospel was present in the church, and then it disappeared for 1,500 years, only to re-emerge at the Reformation. Now, here's the problem with that. Whatever you, however you look at the historical evidence and so on, the problem I have is reconciling that Jesus' promise that the Spirit would lead the church. Um, so, to be Spirit-filled, is to, to love the church, is is to have confidence that the Spirit will guide the church. Uh, and that he has done consistently. So that means I can look at church history all down through the ages. And I know we have this kind of running joke, I'm always quoting dead 8th century guys and stuff like that in my sermons. But that's what, that's what I'm getting at. You know, not explicitly, but implicitly. I'm saying they have not just something to say or a handy act, you know, they are our, fa- our spirit-filled family. They're part of the same temple, the same body. And we have to... Love them. So loving one another isn't just about, you know, me and Murray going for a beer or, you know, us hanging out on a Sunday or whatever. It's not just that. And it's not just works as a service to the present body either. It's love for the whole church. So we confess in one of the creeds, I believe in the one holy Catholic uh, apostolic church. So, you know, it's that confidence in that. And Catholic with a small c, but it's the whole church across time and space that we love and that has to be a genuine love, a love of action and a love of affection. Uh, because, why? Because we have the confidence that the Holy Spirit indwells that church. But it's, it's more than that. It's also, it's, yeah. Part of where I think a lot of this stuff gets difficult and confusing. Yeah. When you use a word like love. Yes, yes. That, that's a huge concept. Yes. Yeah. Many the Greek, all the different words have their own different nuances and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And what we're implicitly taught what love is in our culture today. Yep. And whereas, you know, God manifests his love in so many different ways, yep. which 
Um, a non-Christian would maybe look at that and say, or even a Christian would look at that and say, that's not loving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like issues of judgment and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, to, um, and I'm, just, I'm just aware that um, it's very easy just to swallow that. Yeah. I think you know what you're talking about. Yeah. When actually, it's actually a complex thing that um, it's, it's part of, of course, understanding the character of God. Yeah. Which, is, which the character of God is love, but it encompasses all these other it's like the different facets of the diamond, isn't it? Yeah, well, well I'm, I, you're right, and it's a, it's a proper caution. And in a sense, we're, you know, the path I'm walking along is one that goes along the edge of a precipice, which we might call tolerance. You know, there is, to our right, you know, we can fall off the cliff and just say, that means we just have to love everyone and just accept what they say, and it makes no difference, you know. Which, and that's, which, which a lot of people... Which is a lot of people do. Say that. And, true. you know, it's a lot of, in the ecumenical movement, mm-hmm. there can be a lot of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. where there's no boundaries and, and stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a good caution. Um, there's something else I'm going to say about what you said. Um, anyway, so I'll come back to me, but it's, yeah. it's a really helpful point. Uh, I just think that what we're doing here is we're laying foundations. Yeah. And so I think we need to flag that sort of thing out. So let me... So, we think we know what we're talking about. Right, right. When actually, yeah. it's more complex. So, so to make it ta- you know, tangible, so then in terms of our approach to, let's say, other denominations in the historical church, what does it mean? Well, I'll give you an example. The example I thought of today, I was trying to... I talked to someone else about this, and I was trying to... I've got a relative who has got a, a child who's a bit of a show-off, and... She describes him as an expeditionist. You heard me correctly. An expeditionist. Um, and she means, of course, exhibitionist. Right, okay. Okay, fine. This mistake is characteristic. No, anyway. Right, I, she's, a, she's my family. And I love her. And so she uses the wrong word for something. And what does love do? Does love go... You stupid woman. Why have you used... Oh, I'm not giving it away. It's a woman. Um, why, why, have you, why have you used the wrong word? Or does it take it really literally and go, oh, he's an expeditionist. I'll go and buy him a backpack and a, a water bottle. You know, that's... what you said. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I miss it. That is what you said what? to her. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> This is <laughs> so what does love do? Love, you know, I mean, we've looked at, you know, love covers over sin. Love, you know, so it's a simple illustration like that. You either you don't say anything or you make a joke of it, or you know, actually, if it's a genuine mistake and it's going to, you know, mean that she doesn't get a job because a job interview, you probably genuinely correct. Or do you know what I mean? Like, what does love do? It journeys with the person. It goes as far as it can in 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 love. And God does that with us, of course, you know, the incarnation, the cross, that's, that's the son of God's journey into our sin. And, you know, he's journeying with us as far as he can go. And that's probably a lot farther than most of us are comfortable with, actually. Calling again and again and again to the sinner. And, you know, Paul reflects it in his own ministry. I've become all things to all men, that by all possible means some might be saved. And that's what love does. So love isn't tolerance in the sense of it doesn't matter what you believe, but love is that commitment to the person you encounter or the belief you encounter to really, truly understand and be open to the possibility, you know, I might be wrong or they might be wrong, but they might just be ex- expressing something true but in an incorrect way or there might be actually a serious problem here or maybe they're persuadable in the long run, maybe they aren't. You know, it's that journeying into that and actually being uh, a, a brother or a sister in Christ. So when I say love for the church, I'm not just saying it doesn't matter about denominations. It doesn't matter you know, about the Reformation. It doesn't, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what does love do? It journeys with those that actually we seem to be separated from. And it finds out what's really, really going on. It looks beyond the immediate appearance and perseveres. So it's 1 Corinthians 13, just applied ecclesially. It's, it, that's what it is. And, you know, I, I think of... Um, Jesus and um, sorry, Joseph and his brothers at their reconciliation. You know, and his Joseph was a guy who was, he was dressed like an Egyptian prince, and probably meant mascara and all that stuff you see on the cartoons. 
you know, headdress and everything. His brothers didn't recognize him. And he had every reason to take advantage of their lack of recognition, you know, either to punish them, to mock them, to send them away empty-handed. And yet there was this reconciliation because of love. And, and the irony, of course, being that he, this apparent alien, had the very thing that they needed. He had the, the storehouses of Egypt at his command during the famine. So, you know, and what does love do? It pursues on, the, on that basis of hope as far as it can go. And um, so, anyway, I think I've made that point. So there's, a, so there's a confidence in the Spirit's guidance in the church, a generosity of spirit towards other Christians and towards other beliefs. Some of that generosity is bearing with you know, um, imprecise or incorrect or loose theology. You know, the thing is, you see, this is the interesting thing, this isn't just theory, you see this happening in the charismatic movement, don't you? For you some of you guys lived through the charismatic renewal. And what you saw is a blurring of denominational boundaries as we became aware that actually we had genuine brothers and sisters beyond our denominational boundaries. And it was like God was saying, loosen up. <laughs> well, not loosen up, but love each other. And, and so you can see that in it. And, you, and that's one of the tensions between sort of reformed theology and charismatic theology. So there does seem to be that genuine openness to, you know what, I know that their theology may not be exactly right, but there's something good here. We need to find out what it is. So, you know, I'm just kind of formalising that. But it's also recognising that one of the promises in terms of the Spirit's guidance comes through that love for one another. So as we love one another, Jesus says he will send us another counsellor. Oh, he actually says, I'll ask the Father and he'll send you another counsellor. So actually our understanding of the truth, and this is a pressing issue for our culture. Back in 1500s, you know, during the Reformation, there were... You pick up the Bible, at least from Calvin, look at the passage 1 Corinthians 6, and they'll look at the list of sins. And uh, let's be controversial. They look at this homosexuality listed as one of the things that Christians can't do. And there would be no debate between either of them, or any Catholics, or anyone else in their society about the interpretation of that, that passage. Now here we are 500 years later, and there are people who genuinely and heartfeltly you know, sincerely, and they think they're being evangelical and biblical, saying that only applies to certain types of homosexual relationships, not generically. Well, who's right? Who's right? I had a professor at uni, I've told you some of this, uh, who was convinced that the, Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter was ironic. Well, you know, when Paul talks about the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and wickedness, you know, and God's handed them over to their sin and all that stuff, you know that? passage. He was convinced. It was so unlike Paul that he could have only meant the opposite of everything he said. And that when he'd, sent, when he'd written the letter, he gave instructions to the letter bearer that he had to stand in a different position to make sure that the listeners, he'd written a PhD on it, uh, he'd make sure the listeners understood that he was being ironic. Well, who's to say? <laughs> I mean, it's, I, you know, I find it highly unlikely, but how do you discern those things? See, Back in the Reformation, there was no question over interpretation. It was just a case of, if the Bible says it, we believe it. But now we're facing these things. Well, actually, our love for the church, this is back to your point, Lucy, that you said on one of your answers, our love for the church is, if you like, it's a triangulation. What What we believe has to be true according to Scripture. But if we're saying something that no other Christian has ever believed, it's in contradiction to what Christians have believed, it cannot be true by definition because we are out of unity with the church. Now, that does raise some big theological issues we don't have time to go into yet. But that's the basic thing. We have this unity with the church gives us a triangulation that enables us to negotiate what truth really, navigate what truth really is. So, and I think love for the church gives us a desire to be one in heart and one in practice with, with the church throughout the ages. It doesn't mean we do exactly the same as every other church, because there's diversity in the body, but there's a desire to be a, a genuine visible, some, some sort of visible you know, continuity, if you like. So, I, th- I think that's what it is. So, I'm spending a lot more time on this in Word and Spirit, because this is the newer stuff. Has, is what I'm saying, does it make sense? Yeah. Is it it's not too abstract, I hope. Okay, so then, what I'm suggesting to you is, our first value is that we're a word church, our second is that we're a spirit church, our third is that we're a 
love for the whole church, church. Is that okay? And I think that's foundational. I think the implications of that work through every part of of, uh, how we worship and how we do discipleship and so on. Okay. Yeah. Church now, yeah. Certain sections of church because they're not in the name of love. Yes. What they have done is changed, um, this is Romans, they changed God's truth for a lie. Yeah. And that's what they've come to believe. Yeah. As long as Paul wasn't being ironic, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which way would you stand? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so we'll get on to, uh, we're going to finish with a little bit of discussion on, on that. Um, the last. Uh, last value, the fourth value, is if, you, if we go on this journey, and this is a journey that the Lord has taken me on, so, and, and actually, do you want, if you look, go listen back to, I mean, I don't recommend it because it's like hundreds of hours of preaching, but if you go and look at the preaching <laughs> over the last eight years, you'll see, you'll see you know, it coming through in everything we're saying, this journey, um, right back from when I was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and that was transformational for me, uh, <laughs> and um, I mean, it really was, because the Lord was teaching about his word and, you know, his lordship and that sort of thing. But that led me directly. Then we did 1 Corinthians, remember that? We did that as a series. And we all talking about love. And then we did John for like five years or something. <laughs> and through all these, you know, the Lord's taken me on a personal journey. So the fourth one, if you take that approach, if you love the, ch- if you word and spirit and you love the church and you don't freak out about, you know, people from different denominations saying things that might be true or wacky things happening, you know, you enter into those relationships, what, what emerges? And what I suggest, and this is probably, I, I think you guys will get it, whether you'll be, and I think you'll like it, whether you're quite as excited about it as me or not, I don't know. <laughs> so maybe you'll have to take my word for it that this is a foundational value, but I really do think it is. Once you begin to see that, what you look, what you, what you begin to see is that for 1500 years of the church's history there was something central to our Christian faith that is really, really vitally important for us to understand now but that in many Protestant churches we kind of forgot about you know, we lost sight of but we, we began to stop articulating uh, so you, and this is the controversial bit so you do see it in the I won't say Catholic churches because they are a mixed band to say the least <laughs> But in Catholic dogma, in their official teaching, you see it in the Orthodox and the Coptic churches and the ancient churches around the world. Um, and for us, we tend to be quite denigrating of some of, the, some of these things. Um, what we see is that the word, word, in the Bible doesn't just mean scripture and Jesus, but it also has something to do with the world around us as well. The, the creation. So God speaks through the material, the world that he's made. And that's actually the point of John 1. Everything was made through the word. Nothing was made, has been made without the word. You know, John is saying there, everything God made, simply everything God made speaks of him. And, and this is the, this is the key, the unique, the Christian perspective, everything that he has made speaks of him and invites a response. So the word is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And that we live in relationship with God by not just through experiences we have on a Sunday or in private prayer, but actually we live in relationship with God through everything He's made. Like what it means, you know, our humanity, physical and immaterial, and the created world around us. He's speaking, and we know Him through those things, and we're able to reply, if you like, to Him in our whole lives because the world He's made is. And, and this is what lies behind our statement. You know, God said it was good. The creation is good, not just because it's pleasant or beautiful or, you know, because it's nice. And then once we're done with this whole living on earth thing, we're just going to get rid of it and have something better. The creation is good because it's the very thing that enables us to know God. So if you mess up the creation, the creation if you break the rules of the creation or you kind of take bits out and put them in the wrong place, or actually, this isn't just a case of some moral, arbitrary thing that you're doing. But actually, you're covered. if we know God through the creation and you mess it up, what's going to be the consequence of that? 
you don't know God anymore. Does that make sense? Could you see why that might be important for our the generation we live in? We know God through the world he's made. We hear him and we respond to him in the whole of life. So there's an integrity of the created order and so we know God through that created order and also there's a compatibility between the material world and the supernatural world. So when we encounter God in the supernatural, he is not interested in getting rid of our humanity or making our everyday experiences boring or, you know, we have... We have that song, which is quite beautiful, and in its context is really, really good, where we talk about, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and things of the world and grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Temporarily, right? That's what happens, because when you see Jesus open, but actually, as you, as you look at him, the things of this world begin to grow brighter and brighter again, because actually they're infused with meaning. They, they become the means by which we have a relationship with God. Okay, I feel like I'm talking about a hundred different things at once. Am I making sense? Yeah. Okay. Okay, this is the controversial bit. So, in theology, we call this way of looking at the world sacramental. That doesn't mean the sacraments of the Catholic Church. <laughs> okay. It just, and that's just the word that Christians have used for hundreds of years sacramental. It just means the creation is good and you can't dispense with it if you want to know and worship God. It's, it's woven into it. So, you know, the supernatural and natural aren't opposed to one another, they're compatible, like male and female. It's like it's an analogy that God gives us in the Bible. They're compatible, they go together. And when you bring God and his creation together, something amazing, even more amazing happens, like in a marriage. So it's sacramental. So the world in all its beauty, human beings as physical and spiritual beings, especially are central to the way God reveals himself and the way that we can know him. And what I'm proposing is that this is being sacramental is the fourth of our key values. Because, and this is, <laughs> once this is in place, it speaks prophetically to our culture, but also it gives us the most biblical and the most spiritual and the most church-loving way of understanding our faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I appreciate that's kind of like a download of ideas, but really these are the four things. Word, spirit, church-loving, Sacramental, and from that, I know we've come a long way since uh, what was his name, Wigglesworth. Okay, it, it sounds grandiose. I actually think that what we're talking about is what he's talking about. That actually, the key to if there's going to be a revival, if there's going to be a new move of the spirit, it's not just the whole word and spirit next to each other, like um, two incompatible things. We just try really hard to squeeze together. And, you know, but actually, figuring out actually when these go together, it leads to this church-loving, sacramental understanding, and this is spirit-filled life that makes sense of the whole of life. There's this word that breaks out from the confines of the church and enables us to to know God's love in all things and to love Him in all things. I think that's what you know, the Lord's doing, and it, I hope that captures, begins to capture imagination. I hope over in the future it begins to capture your heart and we see fruit from it as well. Does that sound okay? Yeah. yeah. I, I've done a load of talking and I just thought it'd be nice to finish with the discussion. Is there enough to discuss? If I give you another sheet like the one I gave you and just ask you to imagine, is that going to be some, you know, what a church looks like that looks like? Is that something you're going to enjoy or you're like, I want to go home now? <laughs> uh, votes. Should we put our hands up? Do you want to do a little discussion? Hand up. Do you want to go home? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> okay. um, it'd be good to do a discussion because actually there's, there's some concrete things I want to give you as well. So let's do that then. Okay. There we go. Have a little thing. There's some Bible verses you can look at. Okay, guys. Um, we draw things together. We, I'm, I got carried away chatting to this table here. Uh, are we okay for time? Does anyone really then have to go? Ten minutes? Would that be okay? Yeah. So, come on. What are the highlights? What did you discuss? Anything like you like surprised you? Anything kind of exciting or interesting?
from what it is to mean to be a church-loving, sacramental church. Come on, knock me over. I think in sacramental there has to come an emphasis then. If you're recognising that the way you live is um, representing Christ, which is what it's essentially saying, then there's a real emphasis on personal responsibility to live a holy life that yeah. does echo Christ. So by, by adding the love element, what you're saying is our personal responsibility, we hold ourselves to a very high standard of trying as much as possible. Um, empowered by the Spirit of God by trying uh, to lead a holy life, but we don't force that on other people in the sense of being more concerned about how they live than ourselves. Yeah. Like yeah. A personal responsibility yeah. and a loving attitude of how can I, what other people, how other people live, help me be a more holy life yeah. rather than they need to be more holy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. I think as well, like the holy life thing is, it brings a, uh, an everydayness to that holiness so some of those Bible references I, I threw in was like Paul talking about live a quiet life um, uh, he talks about his own humility in comparison to the super apostles but actually if you want to talk about it in terms of the power of the spirit you know I'm convinced that uh, and this is where our, my connection with Steve Upple came in because I heard him saying something like this on the radio once is, is actually if you, want to, if you want to see the Holy Spirit move in power in your church and experience his gifts and his fruit of the spirit and see him empower your mission um, you need to. He, what he said to his elders was they, they had this this, this uh, day where they were talking about that stuff, and their their conclusion was go home and love your families, <laughs> and then love your church. And as you do that, there's this kind of overflow from the the most everyday things, you know, further and further out. And then the church is, and then you get the picture of the church as the temple with the river flowing out of it, um, bringing life to the world. So there's this overflow principle. So rather than going for the deep supernatural wacky experiences that disconnected from the everyday actually there's a profound connection between um, your everyday life your personal holiness your love within your family love within the church and and that experience of the Holy Spirit so it gives a shape and an order to those things the Bible literally speaks about that when it talks about marriage doesn't it it says a wife of an unbeliever as a husband wins them over by her holy life and that's a mirror of the church and how it would be that's great. Yeah, brilliant. Cool. As opposed to going like from meeting to meeting. Exactly. And and a separation between say work and home and the supernatural, you know, which is you know there's a beautiful vision. The sacramental vision, if you like, is that we perceive God's love, the Father's love for us in everything, everything, and that we're able to reply as sons through everything that we love Him. And therefore, experience the life of the Spirit in everything, uh, and that's—I think that's profoundly, like, mind-blowingly beautiful, um, and rich, and healthy, and much better than that meeting hopping sort of <laughs> by a country mile. So, yeah, thank you. Anything else? Could it be right uh, sacramentally to say <laughs> to say to um, that we need to respect God's creative order? Yeah. Um, especially in today's climate, um, in a loving um, four or five way. Really. Yeah, so I'd say that's absolutely right. And I say there's two aspects to that. There's the ecology issue, which can seem very abstract, but actually is, is quite pressing. Um, there's an order of good. So, like, 
the most important thing is love for God and then love for the, one another, then love for the world. Like, so it's not the most important thing, like how we treat the trees, but actually it is all the animals, but actually it is all, it's all of the peace. Um, and, so, and we all have different callings, and some of us will be called in the way that we live our lives and the people we influence to actually make a difference to those things. Um, you know, we can affect public policy, we can affect all those things. And I don't think it's grandiose to talk about those things. I think we have that duty. So I think on a big scale that's true. Uh, on a more local scale, it can help, it can give us uh, theological sacramental imagination. So when it comes to, say, your job, like for example, um, you know, decorating, uh, even if it's architecture, sounds a bit weird, town planning, all those sorts of things. Actually, the idea that beautiful is important and that nature is, is a part of that. God's vision for the world um, at the beginning was a, a garden city. I think you know anyone who's interested in design should find that inspiring. Yeah. A garden city is natural and it's human, and they complement each other. And, um, and actually, so, so that can inform those things. And then, really close to home, it's realizing like where we worship and how we worship is is an aesthetically important thing. So, like actually having a beautiful church that's well looked after, that looks nice and you know feels nice and reflects the world around us and lets the light in or whatever you know actually these are, these aren't so minor we never need to care about them but actually they they all build into the whole picture and that builds into um, even the way we worship as well like beautiful music aesthetically uh, having a high aesthetic value on the songs that we choose and is that does that sound too airy fairy do you understand where i'm coming from so actually the aesthetic is really important and let me just say sorry i'm thinking, thinking out loud but in terms of our evangelism, we have to realise that for most people, the gateway to their heart in our generation is beauty. So people are more attracted by beauty than they are by truth. Now, it doesn't, that's not the only, they can't live on that, but if you're going to get people into church, then they, there is an experiential element to it. That actually, you know, if the way we worship doesn't grab people's uh, imagination, doesn't appeal to them in terms of beauty, or the way we explain the gospel doesn't appeal in, in terms of beauty, we may never get as far as telling them the truth. Um, so I think that's really, really important. And I think it makes sense of some of, you know, uh, what appeals to people about church or puts them off as well. Who want to get too slick in a presentation? Because then, you know, it's not about being professional and like having everything just so. Yeah. It's about actual substantial beauty, like aesthetically pleasing because things we give in a sense of design and things like that by God, right? Yeah. No, I think it explains why that slickness can be appealing. But actually, I think the, actually the Bible gives us a model of true aesthetic beauty. Again, to pick up on Angie's point about the godly wife, the uh, 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 Christian femininity, there's a sim- simplicity in beauty that we should aspire to. And I think that's relevant to how we do church as well. A, a simplicity that allows the substance to shine through, that doesn't cover up what's underneath, but uh, reveals the person rather than... Um, so going back to Chris's point, that's saying about love and having what Christ's love means, and we may not necessarily, as a societal culture, understand what that means. Yeah. It's the same as beauty isn't, oh, it's not a worldly beauty that we're trying to portray, it's a godly beauty, and they're two completely different things, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good, anything else? Well, Tom? Sorry, Andrew. Is that the whole church? So that's including the current church. Yeah. Have you, like, going forward, have you identified which churches <laughs> that is, and, and what will we actually do with them? Well, it's a good question. No. <laughs> I suppose it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like I was saying the other Sunday about the most important person is the person who's right in front of you right now. And I think probably that's, in terms of which churches, it's probably the ones that are closest to us, um, the Christians that actually we have a, a chance of sharing our lives with, so those who live in Turner's Hill and maybe worship in other churches. And beyond that, if, it's, if God wants us to have anything to do with anyone else, he'll have to make it really, really obvious, because it's probably beyond our remit, I think. And in terms of what we do, I think actually, genuinely, probably not so much the, inter- the ecumenical stuff, um, but maybe fellowship, like eating together, uh, is probably the first step, like invite some Christians around who don't go to Tennis or Free Church and, you know, and have a meal with them. Or, or maybe invite them here or have a meal with them or something. You know. 
just just sharing our lives, I suppose. A general friendship. To start with, I think. Yeah, maybe, maybe more than that, yeah. Once we let go of that sense of we we got it right and everyone else got it wrong, there's like um yeah. there's like a sense of like we can invite people to spend time with us and affirm them in their churches and not say that's a rubbish church, you could you should come to our church. Like so instead of being building up those barriers between the churches, we're saying, I think it's great what you're doing in your church or whatever we do. Right, or we can at least reserve judgment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah, but then share vibes as Christians, like with shared experiences, without trying to hope to bring everyone into our church. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose in order to in order to love the whole church, you have to have a whole definition of church. Don't you? Yeah. In that if there are, there would be some things that are beyond the bounds of what we would what we would recognise as being a church that we should right. love, because yeah, we Christ, God, so, just, God just isn't... No, no, and that's, that's the, that is the bigger theological issue, and there's a lot of working out to be done there. Broadly, what I would say is that um, you take a relational approach. So if someone you don't know comes up to you and says, hi, my name's Bob, you don't go, is it really? <laughs> so if someone comes up to you and says, I'm a Christian, we worship the same God, your first response is, brilliant. It's, we're brothers. And then you get to know them. And if it turns out they were lying, well, love takes that risk, right? It takes the risk of having wasted time at the very least. Um, so you, you, it's a relational approach. You journey with, you know, it's whatever's appropriate in whatever context. But you journey with them and you, you enter into a relationship. That relationship actually enables you to then make an accurate judgment of what's actually going on. It could be that you're, just like in a personal relationship, your initial judgments about that person are most likely wrong or your interpretation of their words or actions or body language is most likely wrong. And as you get to know them, you begin to understand them much better. You know, my optimism about that is based on my clumsiness, personally and socially. Like I, I barely know myself, let alone anybody else. And, and when I meet someone, like I used to think I was a really good judge of character or that sort of thing. I, I'm like wrong 99% of the time about people's motives and thoughts and everything. And, uh, and again and again, I'm pleasant, pleasantly and beautifully surprised as I get to know people who, in the past, I would have just pushed away from and isolated in one way or another. As I get to know them, you, you, the richness and the beauty of, of the person that's there, and you begin to understand their actions and words and so on. If that's true on a personal level, how much more, you know, on this this, this massive level? That doesn't mean it's all, uh, you know, I don't know, sweetness and light. Like, yeah, you're going to encounter things that are. Bad and in ultimately it will come down to whether that other person is also seeking that genuine unity in Christ or not. If they aren't, then you can only go so far because at some point you'll be calling them to the truth. Let's say, for example, where they're wrong about something and they say, "I don't care what all of it, I don't care what other Christians think. We're right and everyone else is wrong." And you'll say, and you'll persuade and persuade and persuade. And if ultimately they say no, then there has to be that separation. But love will go as far as it can. So, I mean, there's some knotty things to work out. talking about individuals rather than the church. Because if you take, for example, like Westboro Baptist Church, yeah. what level of defence do you offer someone that would call a church that would call themselves a, a Christian church and, and yet would be despised by most people. Right, well, okay. Where does our defence stop that? And we go, they are simply not a church. It's a good, it's a good question. It's, it's quite complicated. It's a simple answer, but it's quite complicated in, one, in another sense. My first question is, what have West Baptist Church got to do with us? Like, you know, so it's like, if we were next door to them, or in the same town or something, then we might have some kind of duty of love towards them. So let's say when you know, Westboro Baptist is next to, next to us, You've got to go. Sorry, guys, I'm very Sorry, okay. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for coming. Hi. 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 Um, are you guys okay? Let me just spray them and we'll wrap up. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that for probably. Okay. okay, brilliant. Well, we just uh, commit this evening to you and thank you for the fellowship you do give us. Lord, you know, um, at the very least, Lord, you know the intentions of this evening and uh, how um, much heart searching has gone into talking about these things and trying to articulate them clearly. Lord, I, I commend them to you and Lord, I, I pray that you bless us with your, with your guidance, Lord, with clarity of understanding 
But we pray for um, that vision, that prophecy that we heard right at the beginning to be true, Lord. We don't, we don't we want just good theology, Lord. We want to know you and understand you, but we want it to be fruitful. We want to see people saved. We want to see our church glorifying you and worshipping you in spirit and truth. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see people walking in holiness and righteousness and uh, the beauty of holiness, Lord. We want to see all the good things of your kingdom. So we pray the things we talked about tonight, those values, if they are foundational, that they would be truly foundational, shaping and giving life and structure to every part of our, our life together. Lord, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for your gifts to us. Lord, we thank you for the faith even to confess those things and we pray you give us the strength to live uh, worthy of the calling you placed upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much for coming out. Uh, next week, we're not. If you want to meet as a home group, feel free. I won't be producing notes, but you might want to go out for a Chinese or something. I don't know.